Kansas City from a lady that was having some tremendous problems, greater problems than what I knew, and asked if I could work her in. And the only way I could work her in was to take her during a chapel period at the school. It was going to be an extended chapel because the choir was going to sing. And I really hated to do that because one of my favorite experiences in Bible school is the choir. I would find that when I would find that I would be getting kind of under some of all these loads that people were dumping on me in my office that sometimes I just needed to go to choir practice. I'd just sit in the chapel and let the choir practice and sing and it would just raise my heart and my spirit to the Lord. And I really appreciated the, the Calvary's choir and its ministry and music and I just, it was almost too much of a sacrifice. I mean, they didn't sing that often in chapel, and I thought, how can I, how could I give up this one time? But I felt I really needed to. So I, I told them to come. Well, they were late, so I was sitting outside in the little rotunda they used to have in the old school there, and I could hear the choir singing out, and I was really feeling sorry for myself, missing all of that beautiful ministry. And they came in and they said, oh, what are you doing out here? And you're not in your office. Well, I was just sitting here listening to the choir until you came. And they said, oh, we'd like to hear them. And so I thought, well, they said, we'd like to listen to a song. So we went upstairs and slipped into the balcony and sat in the back. And the choir sang, because I didn't know what to do with this lady. And as the choir was singing, and I think Stacy was singing in the choir at that time, and uh, they were singing a particular number and as they were singing, God gave me the solution for this woman's problem from the scriptures. This woman had been to some of the largest clinics in America on fears. She had terrible, terrible fears. One day she was sitting in her car at a signal, and there was a car ahead of her, and a car drove up behind her, and she got this feeling, I'm trapped. I'm just trapped. And she was singing in the choir and she was, you know, in the middle. And she thought, if something happened, I'm trapped. There's people on both sides of me. And she began to give in to those fears and dread to the place that when she would drive to a store, if there were people in line with their shopping carts, she would leave her cart and walk out because she couldn't stand to have someone in front of her or behind her. She was driving around Kansas City, but she couldn't go anywhere where there was a signal because she couldn't stand the panic if it turned red and there was cars in front of her or behind her. Now, you try driving around in a city and find out all the streets, there's no singles, signals. And it was having a terrible effect on her life. She's a very brilliant woman. And she said, my fears are destroying me. She says, I've just been down to that clinic, manager's clinic, is it manager's that's in Kansas? And she said, they haven't helped me. I don't know what to do. And I thought, what in the world am I going to do? You know, she had been to all the who's who's, you know, in all these places and had been not helped. And I was, I was a little bit anxious. I thought, Lord, I don't know what to do. You know, if the big boys don't know what to do, what does this kid know what to do? <laughs> you know, if they can't help her, how can I? And I want you to turn to the 23rd Psalm because that's what they were singing. It's a tremendous psalm for fears. There's different scriptures that are excellent for fear when the 23rd Psalm is a psalm that has some of God's solutions for fear. And when the choir sang it, it's just that you know how they can sing and emphasize certain words and things? 
as they were singing and putting certain emphasis in their music, it clicked. You know how sometimes it clicks? It just, it just clicked, and I knew this was the answer, it, or the beginning anyway to the answer. It said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will what? Fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And boy, when the choir sang this, you know, the way they do in these, these beautiful choir numbers, the emphasis that they sang, I thought, I will fear no evil, I will fear no evil. Why could David say, I will fear no evil? And you looked at that psalm and he said, though I even walk through the, the shadows of death. And haven't you been in the valleys? Have you been in the valleys? It's so wonderful to live on the mountains, but between the mountains is the valleys. And if you go from one mountain peak to another, you always go down through those dark valleys. And why, um, why did David not fear in the dark valleys? He said, first of all, that he realized what? That God was with him. He realized that going down through the very, those very dark experiences that the Lord was with him. But there was two other things that gave him comfort. That was the rod and the staff. And I thought, what in a rod and a staff? A stick and a club. That's a lot of comfort. <laughs> you know, why was that comforting? Well, it was their symbol. The, the staff was used for the sheep. It was used to guide the sheep. It was used to keep the sheep in the way. If a sheep was getting out of the way, they'd use a staff to bring it back in. The rod was used for the wolves. You know what those were a picture of? The shepherd is in control. It's a picture of the shepherd in control. And David said, you know, when I realize that the shepherd is with me and he's in control, I don't fear anymore. And you know, that woman said, you know, when I fear, I don't even think of the Lord. You know, my fears are on my focus on my fears so much that I don't even think of the Lord just gets so far away. I have no concept of him. And so we begin to work on that. And the Lord has done a tremendous work in this woman's life as she began to face her fears little by little and, and gradually deal with these things in her life. And so, if you're a fearful person, you may go to this verse and look at this verse and realize that, you know, that God is in control. Do you really believe that God is in control? And we've got to believe that. It's so important. Turn to Philippians 4, and that's where we want to look this hour. Philippians 4 is... I think, God's major chapter in the Bible on worry. Psalms 37 is one. We may look at that a little bit if we have time. But I, we want to look at Philippians chapter 4 and then just share some other concepts with you about fear if we can. There are at least 10 steps in dealing with anxiety in this particular chapter. 
and we don't have them to give to you, but you may want to jot these 10 steps down. I believe the whole chapter deals with anxiety. That's the whole key to this whole chapter. Not just a few verses, but all the verses are built around this chapter. The very first thing that we need to do, the very first step in dealing with anxiety is to be determined in our own hearts that we're going to obey the Lord. We are going to obey the Lord. Paul said, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Paul did not tell us to rejoice in our situation. Sometimes we cannot. But we can always what? Rejoice in him. We can always rejoice in him. And that is very important. He says, Let your gentleness be known unto all men, for the Lord is at hand. And you could say, you know, it's sure, Paul, he was the greatest Christian probably that ever lived. Paul could say rejoice in the Lord, but he doesn't know what I'm going through. He doesn't know my situation. He doesn't know the problems and the trials of the 20th century. Where was Paul when he wrote this? In prison. What was he waiting to find out? If he was going to die or not. What else didn't he know? exactly how they were going to do it. You know, there was different ways of going. And some were very slow. Then it takes on new meaning, doesn't it? When you realize we're talking here, this guy's going to talk to us about worry. And this fellow was waiting to find out if he was going to die, when he was going to die, and how he was going to die. So he knew what it was, what he was talking about. He tells us that there is only one thing that we can worry about and maintain a relationship with the Lord. And that's nothing. <laughs> and if you and I are worried about something then or anxious about something, then you and I are out of fellowship. Because that's sin. Worry is a sin. And when we are in sin, we break fellowship with the Father. You know what worry says to God? That your problem is too big for him. And if you've got a situation in your life that is so big that God can't deal with it, brother, you better worry. Right? You better worry. If you've got something that God can't do anything about and it's so big that God can't handle, you better worry. In fact, I'll help you. Give me a call. <laughs> so he says, be careful for nothing. You know, be anxious for nothing. Now, one time in a church is a very... Uh, well, some of you know Daryl Handel. It was Daryl Handel's church. It's a very beautiful church in Kansas City. One of the prettiest churches you can go into in Kansas City is Santa Fe Bible Church. And it's a very uh, staid and, uh, oh, I can't explain it. It's, it's the next thing to a Catholic church and it's still being Bible that you can get into. It's beautiful, it's dark, you know, and the beautiful carpeting and the rock walls and the brick. And it's just a gorgeous thing on the inside. And right in front of the pulpit, I had a little secret right here. They didn't know. And I'm standing in this very fancy church. And it says, I said, some people's answer to this where Paul says, uh, you know, be careful for nothing. 
then the solution is, and I took and I put a great big paper sack over my head. So there I'm standing with a suit and a paper sack over my head, just standing there for the people. You know, that's a lot of people's solution to worry. They walk around life with their head in the sack. You ever, you, I've been in some people's homes, you know, and the, the, the mother's not worried about the children. We had a lady, I can talk about her now because she's dead. But <laughs> we had a lady in our church, and you go to her house, and her kids would be running up and down the piano keys. And she'd be... We had a Bible study, in, a home Bible study in this little town, and the kids were throwing chocolate cake at each other, and she'd be there. She never saw it. She didn't want to see it. That's not what God is saying. God is saying he doesn't want us to walk around with our head in the sack, pretend like, oh, everything's just wonderful, just wonderful. Praise God. <laughs> you know, you don't go for that. God says what? God says, I want you to identify your struggles. But I don't want you to worry about them. What does he want us to do with them? Pray about them. God says, I want you to pray about them. And you can't pray about them if you know what they are. And so he says, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And so God says, when these struggles come in your life and the problems come into your life, don't ignore them. Pray about them. Learn how to turn them over to me. Learn how to cast them on me. And if you can take your problems and learn how to give them to God, what will God give you back? Peace that people can't understand. Peace that people can't understand. And he said he'll give you the peace of God which passes all understanding that shall keep your hearts and minds as they rest in Christ Jesus. This is a good translation there. God wants us to turn our minds and our hearts over to him in prayer. And he'll fill our life with peace. I used to envy great Christians until I read their books. And then I decided I'd just rather be average. <laughs> because, you know, the great Christians go through some tremendous fires. God takes them through some tremendous trials. He really does. And they learn some tremendous experience. You read the, you know, the lives of, these, of the, these biographies today, a lot of them aren't worth buying, let alone reading. There's just nothing. You get 98 pages of glorified sin, and then they get saved, you know, on the last page. And you get to read about Sally and all of her evil life. There's a whole series of books that should never be in a Christian rack. You ever see those? They're just evil. You know, this girl was a prostitute. Read about her life. Someone else, she escaped from these men in the white slave traffic and all this stuff. You've, I don't know who puts them out, but it's terrible. It's just garbage. It's really pornography. You know what pornography is? It's when you read something and it stirs up desires in you that's wrong. And I don't care who writes it or who prints it. And if you read a Christian book and it stirs up evil thoughts and evil desires in your heart, that book is pornography. Throw it away. 
God never wanted us to glorify sin or to glorify the Savior. And so it's hard to read books today that have any substance to them. You have to read about somebody who's been dead a hundred years and you've got to go dig around in some used bookstore to find a decent book about them. They're not printing the good books hardly anymore. But you read the lives of these people and they paid a price and all of them learned how to pray. They knew how to turn these things over to God when they went through. You ever read A Thousand Miles of Miracles? Well, if you're a weeper, you need a big box of Kleenex. If you're not a weeper, just a small box. You can hardly read that book without it just tearing your heart to pieces. Of what the missionaries, the price that they paid in China, it just break your heart. But they learn how to pray and how to trust the God. And the God of peace that passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So the second thing that he wants us to do is to pray. You know what's interesting? If you study in the book of Daniel, God said, Daniel, don't fear. I heard your prayer when you first prayed. But you know, the answer didn't come right away. But God heard right away, but you know, the answer was intercepted. And there was a spiritual battle going on, and Daniel knew nothing about it. But God's answer finally came to him. The third point, and I got off my points, I forgot to look here, and that is to realize in verse 7 that God can keep our minds safe as we obey him. And the greatest struggles we have is in our minds. Whenever you see someone that is committing a sin, that's not a problem. That's just the result of the defeat. The defeat already took place up here. Sins are always first what? A thought. First we think about it, and then we run it through our emotions and how we feel about it, and then we do it or don't do it. The fourth point, and this is a very important point. I thought I had brought this overhead, but I didn't. I went to get it. So you need to do a study on this. I, in my estimation, it's one of the most important verses in all the Bible. <coughs> Philippians 4.8. It tells us what we're to think about. God says, this is what I want you to think about. See, we're not to think about, we're not to worry, but we're to think about this. He says, finally, my brethren, Whatsoever things are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and a good report and virtue and praise, the command is what? Think on these things. If your thoughts violate this list, then you are violating a command of Scripture. And what you need to do, if we've done it on overhead, which is not here, is to list those words down. Make a list of those words, because this is so important, and look up the meaning of those words in a Greek dictionary so you know exactly what God says, that my mind, I'm to have a biblical mindset. Remember, he says, gird up the loins of your mind. Set your mind on things above. Think on these things. Just to give you an idea of how we can violate this by not knowing, it says, finally, my brother, think on the things that are true. Now, some of you have heard this before. 
so don't answer it. But those of you who haven't heard it before, you answer it and be wrong, okay? <laughs> if I'm to think on the things that are true, then I need to also think of what would be what I'm not to think on. And so if I'm to think on true things, then I'm not to think on what? False things. That's what we think, isn't it? The opposite of true would be false. But it's not. Because the word true in the Greek means conforming to reality. Our thoughts are to conform to reality, which would be true, you know, real. Think on the things that are real. Now then, what would be the opposite of true? Fantasy. Imaginations. That type of thing. You know, some of the greatest struggles we have is with imaginations. And God says we're to cast down, what? Imaginations. Some of the greatest struggles in any Christian organization is subjective thinking. You know what subjective thinking is? It's thinking what other people are thinking about you. That can literally destroy you. I know they don't like me. Well, how do you know they don't like me? Well, I walked down the hall and didn't say anything. Well, these aren't the brightest halls in the world either. <laughs> As I feel, I see people feeling their way down. <laughs> but it's amazing, isn't it, what can happen, what we think. So be careful about imaginations. It's just, it can just destroy you. And once you believe it, then you begin to look for evidences that it's so. You know, they bought someone else a cup of coffee and they never bought you one. You know, they took some, they took some people out to dinner to Isabel's. They took, you to, they took you out to the Dairy Queen. It just shows you. It's concrete. Absolutely. I got to take my vacation in February. They got theirs in the summer. You know, I mean, you just put it all together and, you, and you've just blown your mind. It's just devastating. Just devastating. And you can go through this whole list. One of the lists that's so important. Let's get down here. What's of our things are a good report? There's a lot of things here, but I want you to go through and study it yourself. Maybe that's why God, I brought a ton of stuff, and I mean literally a ton of stuff. If you want to lift my suitcase, you can believe that. But that's one thing I didn't bring. And maybe God wants you to do some studying on your own, to really look those words up so it, it gets down in you to realize that if you think anything contrary to this, you are wrong. Now let me tell you this. If you cause anybody to think something contrary to this list, you are wrong. I'm not only responsible for what I think, I'm responsible for what I cause others to think. That's important. There are two things that can just literally destroy a Christian organization. Gossip and slander. 
Gossip is sharing the truth with people that are not part of the solution or part of the problem. You know what could change child evangelism radically this week? If you would talk to the person that you're upset with instead of everybody else. That's the truth. If you would learn to go to the brother or sister that offended you instead of to the snack room, drinking fountain, or wherever. And until that principle is really put in practice right here, a lot of the struggles will never be resolved. Now that's the truth. And you ought to commit yourself that you will not say anything about somebody in this organization to anyone else unless they're going to help you solve it. And if I were you, I'd make a commitment that if someone comes to you and wants to tell you something negative about another employee in this organization, that you would refuse to listen to them unless they've gone to that person first. And that you will go with them to help straighten it out. And when you offer to go with them, you know what they'll say? Never mind. A gossip needs an ear. And if you give your ears to the Lord, you've cut off one of their sources. And if they have no one that will listen, the talk will stop. What's slander? Slander is telling the truth about someone in a way to defame their character. What you're saying is true. Gossip doesn't necessarily have to be true. Slander is true. But it is stilted in such a way that it causes you to have bad feelings about the one that you heard it about. And slander and gossip should never be in a Christian organization. Do you agree with me? Then why is it here? It's not of the Lord, is it? It's not of the Lord. It's the work of the enemy. And to pass detrimental information on, you are just playing Satan's game. And it's so easy to do. When's the last time you heard something good about somebody around here? When's the last time someone shared with you a good report about an individual? We really need to pray about that. We need to dedicate our mouths and our ears to the Lord. No one is perfect. No organization is perfect. 
And we really need to be careful about what we're doing to undermine the Lord's work. I really feel strongly this way. I think either get with it or leave. If you can't support it, go. But going isn't the answer. The answer is, Lord, don't let me be part of the problem. Let me be part of the solution. Lord, don't let me be a gossip. And Lord, don't let me use my mouth for slander. What did James say? Can a spring bring forth evil water and sweet water? You know, can we bless man and curse God and all that? That stuff should not be coming out of our mouths. We ought to really purpose our hearts that when we open our mouths, that what we'll say will edify one another. That will encourage and build up one another. Not tear down and point out faults of one another. You know, when was the last time you encouraged somebody around here? And it's so easy to get discouraged. I mean, look at the, look at that. Um, was that for a week? Brother, if we got $83,000 in one of our offerings in a week of the church, well, I'd be on the ceiling. Woo! <laughs> Thank God for the 83. Or someone can say, well, missed it by 4,000. Do you know, it's so easy to see the holes, isn't it? Did you notice the crack in the ceiling down at the corner around that? No. <laughs> you see, that's all some people see all the time. All they see is the warts. The cracks, they don't see, they don't see anything. They don't say, God help me to be a real encouragement around here. We need to encourage one another in the Lord's work. We really do. I'm sure there's not one person here that isn't making some kind of sacrifice to be with this organization. And we ought to be grateful for each other and encourage each other every day. Just try to go around and say something. Say, Lord, help me to encourage every person I bump into today. And say things that would just build them up. That we might leave every night just rejoicing that we're a part of this organization. That's reaching the children of the world for Christ. No one else is doing it. No one else is doing it. So do a study on this. That you will give a good report. So that people will think positive things and right things and so on. I'm not saying not deal with the problems, but go to the one who is causing it and deal with that. That's to go, the one to go to, not everybody else. Because it doesn't solve anything, it just makes things worse. Verse 9. These things which ye have seen, these things which ye have heard, have both heard, received, and heard, and seen in me, what? Do, and the God of peace shall be with you. He says, begin to practice what you know, and God's peace will be with you. You practice these things. Paul says, do as I do. I'm telling you to do this, but you've seen me do them. And you do as I do, and you will have peace in your heart if you do these things. Verse 10, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care for me has flourished again. 
wherein you were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. And so verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, you know, that to stop looking at yourself and look to others. Get your eyes off yourself and get them on others. He says, I am so thankful that you looked on my needs. I'm thankful that you looked at me and they flourished and they saw the need and they took their eyes off themselves. Don't get introverted. Well, I'll tell you, when you get introverted, you can have real problems. Get your eyes off yourself. Get them on others. And then he says, not that I speak in respect of want because he wanted to clarify this very thing. Not to speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, including Missouri, therein <laughs> to be content. You know there's a key here. If you are not content with what God has provided for you right now, you will not be content with what he hasn't provided yet. You know, carnation milk came from what? Contented cows. That's our commercial. Uh, <laughs> but let me tell you this. If I was a fellow, I'd only marry a contented cow. Because if she's not content, she never will be. If she's not content right where she is and what she has, she won't be content with what you give her. I led a doctor to the Lord a number of years ago. What prompted him to Christ was his wife left him and he was desperate. This fellow has been on a program of paying off the debts of his wife. I believe they were somewhere around a half million dollars. It was for clothes in the different stores in this large city. And he told me just recently on the telephone that he just recently paid the last store off. And there was a car in there, and the fur coat said he bought her, she'd given him away. And when she left him, she moved in with someone else, and then she left that fellow, and she moved into an apartment, and she had a problem because she had so many clothes, they wouldn't fit in the closets, and they were getting all wrinkled, so she asked if she could store some of the stuff back in his house. And guess what she would say? What do you suppose the thing his wife would say when they were married? I don't have a thing to wear. That people haven't seen at least once. She was not content. She has never been content. It has been a terrible, terrible thing. And she nearly put him in the poorhouse. And they have a beautiful home on a lake and everything else. And she was never content. She, he was just telling me recently, she said, told him, she said, our boy looks terrible. This kid's four years old. He said, this boy has, I don't know how many designer jeans, how many designer shirts. He was telling me all this stuff. He says, how much clothes does the kid need? Now she's going to give these terrible value systems to this boy. And he says, how in the world could I have ever married that woman? I said, you know something? When you drove up to my house to get saved, it's one house call I did make. When you drove up to my house for me to counsel you, I looked out the window and I thought, oh no. 
this big fancy car and this playboy jumps out of the car. You know one of these tennis guys? <laughs> you just should see this guy all slicked down. Oh, I thought, oh no. You know, I'd never seen him before. And he comes up to the house and he accepts. I said, you were just like her. He says, oh, I couldn't have been. I said, you were. You were just like her. But God has done a work in his heart. He's got a whole new value system today. He's interested in the souls of men and women. Not in things. But he was just as bad as she was. So be careful. You know, you think if you only lived in that house, then you'd be content. If we only had this, then I'd be content. Paul said, no, you won't. Paul said, whatever, if I've got two nickels or a pocket full, makes no difference. I'm always content with what God has provided me. He says, I've learned, I know both how to be abased and how to abound. And everywhere in all things, I'm instructed both to be full, to be hungry, both to, to abound and to suffer need. And then verse 13 comes right in that context. What does he say? I can do all these things. How? Through Christ. That strengthens me. Whether I have a lot or don't have very much, Christ will take me through. Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my afflictions. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. And you know, young people, if you become missionaries with child evangelism, there's going to be certain people that are going to become your partners for the rest of your life. Isn't that right? They're going to support you and they're going to communicate with you in a financial way the rest of your life. And some of these people are going to make sacrifices that you know nothing of so that you might minister the gospel for the rest of your life. And that's what Paul is thanking this church for the sacrifices they made so he could minister the gospel. For even in Thessalonica he sent once and again unto my necessities, not because I desire a gift. That was not Paul's desire, was so that churches could give to him. People would give to him. Be careful about that. That, I think, is one of the traps of Christian workers. It can be a trap to begin to desire the gifts of people. Isn't it? When you know that someone has it, Be careful about that. But I desire what? What did Paul desire? Fruit. Not their money. But he desired fruit. That it may abound to your account. Paul said, I knew that if you give, if you, God leads you to give to me, that God is going to put it on your account. And you'll be rewarded for that. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Ephroditus the things which are sent from you as an odor of sweet smelling a sacrifice acceptable while pleasing to God. And then verse 19 is the next key. And this verse eliminates the fear of poverty. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Isn't that a tremendous promise? God will provide all your need. We had a missionary come back from the mission field. I said, do you have any needs that we could take as a Christmas gift? He said, yes, but I don't want to tell you. I think I'd hate to tell you this. He said, well, we want to do something special. I didn't even ask the church. I said, we want to do something special for you. He said, well, I'd like a computer. 
I said, you really, you think a computer, but you said, yes, if I had a language computer, it really helped me out there in Indonesia. I said, okay, that'll be our Christmas project. How much do you need? He said, well, $3,200. Oh, well, <clears throat> you know, we have never done a Christmas gift like that. Uh, so we put a thing up on the wall and we said, we need $3,200 by Christmas time. Well, finally, one guy came to me two weeks before Christmas and he says, I'm really upset. I said, what you upset for? And he said, well, you know how much money came in? I said, yeah. He said, I didn't get a chance to give. I said, if you want to give around here, you've got to give quick. <laughs> you know what he got? $4,300 as a gift. One offering we took for a missionary father and his son on a Sunday evening service. You ever been to Sunday evening service in a Bible church? You know what the offering was for this missionary and his wife, these, these two missionary couples, because they were connected with the church and everything? Guess what we gave them? We split $7,000 between the two of them. See, God shall supply all you need. You know, both those couples were going back to the field. You know how much money they had for their tickets? They were new tribes. How much money do you suppose they had for their tickets? Not a dime. Leaving, they're going to leave the next day, driving down to Miami to get on the plane, didn't have a dime for the ticket. You know, those new tribe people are just so dumb, they trust God. <laughs> well, they didn't know, but they knew somewhere between here and Miami it was coming in. Now unto God our Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. And all the saints salute you. Chiefly them are Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. You know, realize the very last thing here in the area of anxiety and fear. Paul says what? Remember, God's grace is with you. You don't need to worry. God's grace is with you. God knows your needs. God will supply Set your mind where it ought to be. Learn how to commit everything to him. And the grace of God will sustain you. And you don't have to worry. You know, a Christian is one who doesn't have to worry. We have a, we have a choice. We can choose to worry, or we can choose God's peace that comes through committing it to him in prayer. Now, here are some quick things. How much time do we have, Julian? Okay, here are some things you might want to jot down. One of the most excellent things that you can do as a, as a person outside of this to help you when anxieties and things take place, and there will be times that the, it seems like the pressures mount up and things happen, one of the most important things that you can do in your home is to play Christian music. Good Christian music. Because it helps to set your mind and heart on the things above. The right music in a home is just so wonderful. And that, I would think, is one of the most important outside of praying that you can do in your home is to have the right kind of music programmed into your home, and especially when you're down. Be careful about the music you play. There's, music is mood. We had a girl that I would have teach music at Calvary. She worked in the Shawnee Mission Medical Center. She had a master's degree in music therapy for disturbed people. She's a Christian girl, and she would come and she spent one hour sharing with the students that had a hard time believing that music can affect your emotions. 
That was her job. She was professional in it. And they would have this girl go in and play her guitar and sing scripture songs to mentally disturbed. And she worked with primarily teenagers who are mentally disturbed that listen to rock music. That was her ministry in Kansas City, still is, in this mental hospital, Shawnee Mission. It's a secular place, but they know this girl knows the Lord. And I'll tell you, music is a tremendous ministry. Remember when the evil spirits would depress Saul? What did they do? They brought in the Jericho Five. <laughs> David came in and he played the Psalms on the harp. And what did he do? It said that the evil spirits departed. They just couldn't stick around when the right kind of music was played. But when David left, they came back because Saul had a problem. But you know, I'm not saying that sometimes there's not a spirit of oppression from the enemy that can come on you. Isn't that right? Have you ever had that come? It can come in your home. And all of a sudden, you just sense the, the presence of the enemy oppressing your work. Everything's going wrong. And you just feel like you want to quit. You know, I would ask in, in a Christian college, is how many of you Christian young people have seriously thought of suicide? These would be the older kids. The older kids in my, in my advanced counseling class, usually half the class would raise their hand. That's not of God, you know. But that thought can come. Why don't you just... You know, you'd be better off dead. You ever thought that? You ever been down so low, you just thought, oh, I might as well just, um, you know, I'll just, you know, eat three crackers and die. <laughs> you know, I just quit. Another thing is to get adequate exercise. They're learning this. I mean, even the unbelievers in Japan, you know, or where these places, you get up from assembling the computers and you do your hakasaki and all this stuff in the place. You know. You've seen it in the National Geographic. They have them do this. Another one is to get adequate sleep. And if, you need, if you're an eight-hour person, get eight hours. Look at Psalms 127, too. <clears throat> very important verse why most people are tired it says it's vain for you to rise up early if you what sit up late <laughs> what did you expect it just makes sense. Of course, Scripture makes sense. God says, if you're going to get up early, then go to bed early. But if you stay up late at night and get up early, I don't know, our place over there comes alive around 11. <laughs> Doesn't it? I don't know what goes on, but at 11 o'clock, they all come crawling out of the rooms and celebrate in the halls. But it just makes sense. You know, how much sleep do you need? You know, you're serving the Lord and he needs what? God needs your best. God needs your best. Some people only need four hours. That's, that's okay. I'm just saying whatever you need, 
Because, you know, when you start burning the candle at both ends, pretty soon there's no candle. Then you've got a problem. Don't burn it at both ends. God does not expect you to do more than what you can do. And God wants you to take care of this vessel at which he indwells. And he knows if you let it run down, when our bodies run down, so often our spiritual condition goes down with it. So get adequate sleep and so on, and you may find your depressions and your worry is it's not going to be a, a real uh, struggle with you. One thing that can be helpful is to have a prayer partner that you can pray with about some of your frustration, frustrating problems. Someone to share with in prayer. And you know I'm going through some real tough times. Someone that you can ask and share with that, you know, I like, if I'm having a financial difficulty, I don't want to ask somebody that I know that's got money. Because I don't want their money. I'd, I'd rather pray with somebody who doesn't have a dime, and we can pray together about it, and see God bring it in. I'd rather God provide it without me asking. And, and you, you need somebody to pray with. I mean, I think you should pray with your wife, but I think it's really wonderful if you can find a fellow, and if your wife can find a gal, too, that she can have as a prayer partner. There's something that bind, can bind you with other people when you share common burdens and carry each other's burdens to the Lord. It can really develop... a uh, a deep uh, relationship. Another one is is um, learn to live a day at a time. We talked about that. Here's another one too. It's a good one. Imagine the worst thing that could happen. Just imagine what would be the worst thing that would happen if this thing actually did happen. You're really concerned. What would be the worst thing that would happen? Say, well, they'll they first of all they come back and they get the car. Well, then we could walk. The second thing that they do is take the house and move us out on the curb. And it's snowing. And it's cold. Pretty soon we get very cold and then numb. <laughs> then kind of warm and sleepy and wake up in the presence of the Lord. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> I mean, when you think about the worst thing that's going to happen, it isn't so bad. <laughs> it really isn't. You know, if we just take our fears to the end, it isn't so bad. We just stop too quick. But you, you visualize the worst, and the worst would be to die, and Paul said to die is gain. Isn't that right? Unless your life's all tied up with things here. Stacy, you want to put the, um, not that one, just put the other one on, that one there. We want to see here that so much of what we worry about is involved around things that just last for time. If you would just, you know, we talked about the things we worry about. What about the thing? I mean, the things we get angry about, but the things we worry about are usually just what? Temporal. Just temporal things, that's all they are. Just temporal things. We want to be very careful that we don't have temporal values. But that what we're building our life around is that which lasts for eternity. I was talking to a fellow just recently, and he has many opportunities. He's a fellow I told you that drove me to the airport. He has many opportunities to give his life 
to many things. One is he could give his life to fame. He already has because he's famous. The second thing, he could give his life to money, more so than he ever has in the past. But he doesn't want to. Because you know what he knows? That fame and money do not give you security. Do you know, if you really want to have security and you really want to have meaning and purpose in life, is to give your life to that which will count five years from now. To give your life to that which will count ten years from now. But if you can give your life to that which will count for eternity, you can have the most meaning and purpose that anyone can have in life. The more of what you do, the more long-range it will last, the more meaningful life you're going to have. And most every person in here has dedicated their lives to that which lasts for what? Eternity. Eternity. You're making investments with eternal dividends. You're very fortunate. You're very fortunate that God has selected you to serve him so that your life can really count for something. Isn't that wonderful? Really count for something. And when you drive by those big homes, some of those big homes in Kansas City, we drive by these big homes. I remember the home that owns, the guy that owns the Royals, Ewing Kaufman, you drive by his place and you turn the corner and you still drive by his place. I've never seen a place like that. I mean, it just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes. And you say, oh, if I only lived in that house. You know, I had an opportunity of counseling some of the people that lived in those houses because our college wasn't very far from there and they would come over. I wouldn't trade places. You know, a big house does not make a home. Do you know that? It can sprawl and spread, but it doesn't make it a home. You know, just be content and thank God for what he's given you. When we got married, we had early nothing. We we're real happy. Now we have early America. We have very beautiful home. We have very beautiful furniture. The very first piece of beautiful furniture, a couple was praying in Kansas City, and they said, let's give Jim and Marguerite, didn't even know the dad, this, the husband, let's give Jim and Marguerite an Ethan Allen maple hutch. So they gave it to us for Christmas. We had no place to put it but in the living room because we had a tiny house. Then we went to see what it cost. $1,600. You know, it's a place where you store dishes in so people can see three or four plates up here. <laughs> $1,600. Doesn't hold much. Very pretty, though. But, you know, I said, you know, why did God give us... I mean, our home is really beautiful, and if you came, I wouldn't want you to think we're living in some shack out back. We're not. We're living in a very beautiful remodeled home. It's a very lovely home. When you walk in, it's very attractive. Very beautiful furniture. And I thought, why is God giving us this beautiful furniture? The thing I've always wanted secretly was a great, big, beautiful, chiming grandfather's clock. When you walk in the house, you'll stumble over this great, big, chiming grandfather's clock that's standing there. But you know, my wife and I said, if God would call us, we could shut the door and leave it all. We never used to have that stuff. And now we got that stuff. But you know what? The stuff ain't got us. Be careful 
We've seen so many Christians that the stuff gets them. And they begin to build their life around temporal things and not the things that will last for eternity. And when you do, you're either going to get angry if it gets scratched. One little kid bumped our grandfather's clock and it went clunkety clunk in the fall. And I didn't do anything. And he said, why didn't you go? And I said, well, we're just falling over. You know, the Lord gave us a grandfather's clock and the Lord can take it if he wants. It all belongs to him. See, that, that's our, our value system. Or worry about it. Or get angry about it. That tells you you're building a thing around the wrong center. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we're just thankful for the word of God that you've called us here to give ourselves to that which can count for eternity. I just pray, Father, that we might realize that we have the highest calling that a man or a woman could have to sow the eternal word of God, to teach others how to sow the eternal word of God through magazines, radio, television, classes, clubs, and all of the work that you've called us to. And Father, may we realize that the fellows that are shoveling snow right now are just as important to this program as those that are sitting in the office pushing the pins. And Father, we just pray that we might get our eyes off of ourselves and onto you. And Father, that we would purpose in our hearts to obey the word. And Father, may we remember that we have an enemy who's out to defeat us individually and collectively. And you told us that we're not ignorant of his devices. And Father, we know that disloyalty is caused by gossip and slander. And we just pray, Father, that you would just remind us that we're not to be a part of this. We're not to think these things or cause others to think bad reports of other people. Father, teach us to go to those who've offended us and make and deal with it and make things right. And Father, that we might learn to deal with these things a day at a time and not let them pile up. Father, teach us how to live in the divine now and to allow you to develop in us the character and the attitudes of your Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.